Welcome to Repro's Fight Back, a podcast on all things repro. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and each episode I will be taking you to the front lines of the escalating fight over our sexual and reproductive health and rights at home and abroad. Each episode, I will be speaking with leaders who are fighting to protect our reproductive health and rights to ensure that no one's reproductive health depends on where they live. It's time for Repros to fight back. On this week's episode, we are going to talk about crisis pregnancy centers and the case that was in front of the Supreme Court. Um, and then at the end, we're going to dig into what it would mean for a Kavanaugh to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. So helping me dig into this topic, I'm really excited to have Amy Weirich here with me today from the Center for Reproductive Rights. Uh, welcome, Amy, and thank you for being here. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning. And before we can talk about the crisis pregnancy center case that was in front of the Supreme Court, we should probably do a little background. So what are crisis pregnancy centers? Crisis pregnancy centers are facilities that exist to deter pregnant women from using abortion. So they typically provide some combination of pregnancy tests and diagnosis of pregnancy, anti-abortion counseling, material resources for pregnant women so they can provide diapers and baby clothes and baby supplies. And sometimes they have education on topics like parenting, relationships, um, often from a religious perspective. So these are um, facilities that pregnant women can go to, um, but what they do is try to convince women to carry the term. So what does that mean for women who go there to get care? One thing that's important to know about crisis pregnancy centers is that they often um, don't make clear exactly what type of facility they are. So they um, usually have an online presence. They have websites. And on those websites, they don't disclose whether or not they provide abortion or contraception. Um, so women often find CPCs by Googling um, when they think they might be pregnant or they know they are. Um, and when they arrive at these sites, they can look like a full-service reproductive health care clinic, um, like an abortion provider, like a Planned Parenthood, like an independent clinic. Um, often the CPCs have names that are very similar to um, to full-service reproductive health care clinics in the area. Um, so sometimes they can be called things like uh, Center for Pregnancy Choices or um, Women's Women's Gynecology Center, that type of thing. Those are typical names for CPCs. Women who, who either look at these websites online um, or, or even arrive at the facilities may not be um, not be aware that they can only get certain services there and that those services will not include bona fide abortion counseling, the um, access to abortion, obviously, or contraception. Right. And um, they're generally counseled kind of against it, right? They do. So crisis pregnancy centers are um, overwhelmingly religious, and that is um, partly because there are three large national organizations that um, help CPCs get set up and give them guidance on how to conduct their operations. And those are all um, religious organizations coming from a, a uh, traditional Christian perspective. And they see the services they provide as tied up with their, with their faith and um, how, they, how they act on doctrine. So those um, three three large umbrella organizations, sometimes we call them um, umbrella organizations because they provide services to so many CPCs, 
are CareNet, Heartbeat International, and NIFA. And all of those, if you can, can look at them online, um, they also have very extensive websites, and they explain how they are coming at this from a faith-based perspective. Um, and because the uh, related teachings are against abortion, the CPCs also are against abortion, and they provide counseling that is um, from the anti-abortion perspective. So this past term, the Supreme Court heard a case from one of those groups, which what you mentioned, right, which was NIFLA, the National Institute for Family Planning and Life Associates. Can you tell us a little bit about what that case was about? Sure, I can. But just um, for a little more background, um, before we get to the case, yeah. I think it's important for people to understand that um, there are so many crisis pregnancy centers across the nation. These are not um, just a few facilities that are located in certain areas and not others. We actually don't know exactly how many CPCs there are in the U.S., um, but one of the anti-choice groups who submitted an amicus brief in the Supreme Court case estimated that there were 2,750 nationwide wow. uh, serving over 2.3 million people, but they had to say that their figures were actually out of date. That was from 2010. Our best estimate is that that, that is low. Um, we think there are probably more, especially because these large national groups have um, really grown in size and built themselves up over the past um, few years. They have they get a lot of funding from private sources and sometimes also um, through through government sources. And um, you can see that they have just gotten a lot more sophisticated in their methods and their outreach. So there are a lot of CPCs all across the U.S. They also have very sophisticated ways of of, of using the internet to reach out to people who, who might come in and seek their services. Um, so one thing the umbrella groups do, including NIFLA, is sponsor these national um, conferences, and people can come from CPCs to get trained on how to um, better do things, reach out to potential patients, or arrange the, um, the interior of the clinic to um, give patients confidence they're going to get good services, that kind of thing. And some training topics um, that we, um, we 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 listen to audio of the training, um, which are, which are available online. Sometimes you have to buy them, but they are available and they're really interesting. So some topics uh, are rescuing mothers and children from abortion using cutting edge data, and technology, and data. Marketing your pregnancy center for fundraising success. So often the CPCs will have a they provide services like pregnancy tests and so on, but they also do fundraising and they have another nonprofit operation around that. They have trainings called Aid and Switch, um, which we thought was really interesting and revealing because one thing that we were trying to show is, in fact, the way the CPCs represent themselves online does not reflect the services they actually provide. And then just one last training to give you a flavor of what they do is called Marketing to Abortion-Minded Women Through Cultural Icons. Okay. Right. And then apart from the internet, another uh, tactic that CPCs have been known to use is to locate themselves physically very close to abortion providers, um, mm-hmm. often next door, across the street, or in the same complex. And they also give themselves very similar names. So in Connecticut, a Hartford Women's Center is a CPC that is right next door to the Hartford Guidance Center, which is an abortion provider. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, very similar. Right. It's so similar. And, um, you know, people who are arriving there can, can very easily not, not know which 
Um, in Mississippi, there's only one abortion clinic left in the state, and a CPC just recently opened right across the street. It's called the Center for Pregnancy Choices. Um, so these are these are really unclear. You might think if a facility is going to only provide anti-abortion counseling, they would want to convey that in some ways. Um, but you can the names don't do that. <laughs> Um, so that brings us to the Supreme Court case. Could you tell us a little bit about what the case was? CPCs in California challenged a California state law called the Reproductive Fact Act. So the Fact Act um, actually has two parts. One applies to licensed CPCs, and the other applies to unlicensed CPCs. And that's something interesting about um, how things work in California. California does actually allow CPCs to become licensed a process that um, not just CPCs can go through, but other types of public health clinics also can apply for this type of license. That's different from most states where CPCs, um, there is no licensing process for them, so they're not licensed at all. And one thing that social scientists are working on now is trying to figure out, as I said, how many CPCs there are in the U.S. We don't have an accurate count and also, um, you know, whether, what type of interaction with licensing processes or state or local um, regulation they have. That's pretty much unknown. Um, but that is not the case in California because there is actually a licensing process of the state set up. However, not all CPCs have to be licensed. depends on what types of services they provide. Okay. Um, California has both licensed and unlicensed CPCs. When they decided that they um, wanted to pass a law, they um, did it. Um, for two reasons, basically. One, they wanted patients to know about public programs that could um, provide them coverage for abortion, contraception, and prenatal care. And they were worried that patients who were going to CPCs were not aware of these public programs or had access to them. The other um, reason they had for wanting to pass a law was that they were aware that women might um, be confused about what type of facility they're going to, partly because of these deceptive tactics where um, CPCs can have names that are very similar to a full-service clinic and be located near them. So the state thought that they could clarify for women what types of services they would be getting in a facility by um, passing a law that required disclosure. So that's where um, the state was coming from when it drafted the Reproductive Act Act. Um, under the law, there are two different provisions. One applies to licensed clinics and the other applies to licensed clinics. So I'll just tell you um, what those are. Licensed clinics have to put up a sign that says California has public programs that provide immediate free or low-cost access to comprehensive family planning services, including all FDA-approved methods of contraception, prenatal care, and abortion for eligible women. To determine whether you qualify, contact the county social services office at the telephone number. I mean, that seems so, pretty innocuous. It does. It's, it's straightforward, factual, and all it does is inform women about public services. So that sign can, that notice can be posted as a sign on the premises. It can be handed out to patients at other forms, or it can be given as a digital notice to patients on site if the facility, for example, hands out an iPad or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a few options for how this notice has to be um, given to patients. Now, the unlicensed clinics have to put up a different sign. And all that sign says is this facility is not licensed as a medical facility by the state of California and has no licensed medical provider who provides or directly supervises the provision of services. 
So that that's also a very straightforward factual disclosure, just telling patients this is not a licensed facility, and it can be it must be posted on site and also included in advertising. So patients will know about it before they go to the facility, and then they'll decide on that basis whether they want to go to an unlicensed facility or not. Um, so that is a rundown of the law, which I said is called the Reproductive Fact Act. Um, what happened is that CPCs immediately challenged the law, um, bringing two kinds of claims. One, that it violated their free speech rights under the First Amendment, and the other, that it violated their religious freedom rights, also under the First Amendment. It's a little bit legal, legal legalese, but those are two separate kinds of claims. One has to do with speech and what people can say and not say and be required to say and not be required to say. The other has to do with religion and exercise of religion and religious liberty. Um, we don't have to worry too much about that second type of challenge because it didn't go forward. Okay. Um, the, the litigation proceeded with the court evaluating the free speech challenge. And um, the, at the first stage of the litigation, which happened in district court, the court decided that neither of those claims violated the free speech of this. Um, now, the CPCs obviously did not did not like that ruling, and they appealed. And the appellate court that um, covers California is called the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit affirmed that this time was constitutional. It did not violate the free speech rights of the CPCs. And then the CPCs appealed to the Supreme Court, which accepted the case. So that's where we got the decision that was handed down in June. That was uh, the Supreme Court reversing and holding that, in fact, both of the signs did violate the free speech rights of the CPCs. Sure. Let's, yeah, let's talk about the decision a little bit and then maybe touch on a little bit about what that means going forward. Um, so the Supreme Court found that both signs, the unlicensed sign and the licensed sign, violated free speech, but they treated them differently under the law. So what they said is the license sign is presumptively unconstitutional because it mandated controversial speech about abortion. So that means that this kind of signage requirement is subject to the highest level of free speech protection, which in legal terms is called strict scrutiny. Um, but what that means in practice is that they're almost never constitutional because they require someone to say something that is constitutional. But um, that is controversial, excuse me. Okay. And that is, is a very big constitutional red flag and it's almost never going to be upheld. So the Supreme Court struck down the, the license science requirement on those grounds, saying that requiring someone to talk about abortion because that sign does include the word abortion is controversial and compelled and that is not constitutional. The unlicensed sign they also found unconstitutional but for a different reason what they said there is the state hadn't shown that it has a good justification for requiring the sign when they probably have other options to um, tell women that they're going to an unlicensed facility so even they said that this type of sign with this language may not be um, covered by the highest possible constitutional protections but even if protections are somewhat weaker, the state has to have a good reason um, or has to explain why it needs this kind of sign. And the justification can't be hypothetical. Um, it has to really show that there's, there's a reason to, to regulate these speakers, who in this case are, are, are CPCs. 
that they didn't have a good reason here. They hadn't really made their case that deception was happening. They hadn't made their case that there wasn't another way to inform women about this problem, unlike disabilities, if indeed there was a problem. So because of that, they weren't allowed to require the CPC to put up these signs. Wow. I would really think that women going to a clinic thinking they were seeing a doctor and not seeing a doctor would seem pretty important. You would think that, right. Um, one thing to note is that all of this litigation was based on an early stage of the case. So typically when parties want to challenge a law, they go in and they provide evidence and the district court makes the findings based on evidence. But even before they do that, if they think that there is something really urgent going on, they can ask for a lot to be blocked um, before there's a full evidentiary presentation. And that's what happened here in this case. The CPCs were really, really eager to get the law blocked. So they went in right away and um, they didn't provide a lot of evidence to the district court and neither did the state. So the Supreme Court kind of was saying, um, we don't have evidence at this stage and it is it is possible there could be evidence at a later stage. Um, you could come back and try again. But at this point, the state hasn't shown what it needs to show. This could still change then? Um, it's true that the, the state could try to keep on defending its law and provide more evidence in court, and then it could work its way up through the system again. The Supreme Court had also said about that unlicensed sign that the part that applied to advertising was too burdensome. Um, so they were concerned that, as I said, this, this, um, this unlicensed notice requirement has to appear not just on premises, but also in advertising that's going to be out there for patients to see before they decide whether to go into the facility or not. Okay. And that notice had to be provided in um, in potentially several languages, all of the languages that were in, in frequent use according to a state criteria in that county. So the Supreme Court said, well, maybe in California and some counties that could be like dozens of languages and that would just overwhelm the content of the advertising. So CPCs wouldn't be able to get across their message. They would just have this disclaimer swamping it. So because of that, they said um, this, this, this regulation is just too burdensome, and we're going to find that it's probably unconstitutional. So the state has a choice about whether to um, try to modify it, or maybe it could show that, in fact, it's not going to require so so many languages that it would have that burdensome effect. But that was another factor in court that was important there. So, yes, California can try to keep defending the law. Um, the license sign is going to be an uphill battle because of how the Supreme Court treated this as presumptively unconstitutional, not really talking about it as a question that the state hadn't provided enough evidence or data. They just said, really, this, this is constitutionally problematic. So that provision is going to be really hard to defend. The unlicensed sign decision did leave more room for the state to go back, um, but they're going to have to decide what they can do under this legal standard. They're going to have to have some good evidence. They're going to have to decide whether the multiple languages feature in the law is still going to be of concern to the court. They're going to have to do some thinking, um, but that option remains open. Um, so with ruling on First Amendment grounds, does this open a door for abortion providers to maybe challenge some of the things where they're being required to provide false information to patients? Right. So that's a really interesting question. Before the decision came down, 
um, people who work on abortion rights were hoping that whatever the Supreme Court wrote would apply to both abortion providers and CCC. So they're really concerned about compelled speech, and they should be concerned about this whole universe of so-called informed consent provisions that force abortion providers to make not just um, factual, uncontroversial statements, but also statements that we know are wrong, like that abortion causes breast cancer or, 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 or suicidal ideation and depression, um, those, those types of statements that are, that are completely debunked um, by reliable data. And some states require providers, abortion providers to, to tell their patients um, those things anyway. We're hoping that the decision would be helpful for those kinds of challenges. It's not totally clear that it was unhelpful. <laughs> Opinion did distinguish um, abortion by saying that abortion is a medical procedure and it is very um, standard and not constitutionally problematic to require informed consent information to be given to a patient who's going to have a procedure. That has been litigated in the past in various contexts, including abortion. And the case, the Supreme Court did fight back to the one of the um, classic abortion opinions, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, to say that that was the issue there. And the Supreme Court had already said, when someone's going in for a procedure, they need to be given this information about risks and alternatives and benefits and, and, and health, possible health consequences. And that's all fine. That's not something that requires the highest constitutional protection for the speaker who's going to be the abortion provider. So they said ACCs are not providing procedures, which really is wrong because many of them do provide ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And even if they don't, they are counseling women to continue in pregnancy, which may result in labor and delivery, which is definitely a procedure which has risks and benefits. Right. and benefits that have to be evaluated relative to not continuing the pregnancy. So it just isn't true that, or meaningful to say that CPCs don't provide procedures for abortion procedure. But that was the logic that they relied on to try to say that abortion um, might be different and informed consent restrictions for abortion might get lower constitutional protections. In, in any Supreme Court case, there's one issue in front of them that is setting that what they try to say about other issues may not be as binding. Um, so there is there is room to explore that in future challenges to abortion. So after the term ended, things got a little crazy and have really changed with Kennedy's retirement and Kavanaugh's nomination to the court. So what does this mean for reproductive rights going forward? Right. So it was, it was pretty amazing to get the NIFLA decision, and we were trying to grapple with that. Um, and a lot of people thought, well, no, Kennedy was is not going to retire because mm-hmm. he would have done it at least on the morning of the last day of the term um, when they announced another couple of decisions. And then, of course, in the afternoon, the announcement comes, and um, it was it was a shock. <laughs> it was really shocking, and Kennedy has been the deciding vote on abortion cases for as long as he's been on the court. The cases are decided five to four. And um, although Justice Kennedy was not maybe the number one champion of right. abortion rights, and he did have a couple of very bad opinions when it mattered, um, when the right to abortion was on the line, he voted in the right way in order to um, uphold Roe and also to strike down restrictions that would have had the effect of 
drastically reducing access um, in, in many states like he did just in 2016 in the home intel case. But to lose a deciding vote, you know, is a big deal. And that is in the context of Trump's promise, um, President Trump's promise to nominate justices who are going to overturn Roe v. Wade. That is the, um, the context of the vacancy. And um, we know because of that promise and because of all the work that the administration put into vetting nominees that all the people on the list of, of potential justices that the administration has put together, and that's like 20-some people, are, have, have, have met this witness test. They, uh, before, we, before Kavanaugh was announced as a nominee, we knew that people on the list have different kinds of records, have red flags that are obvious about abortion, and some have, have, have not heard abortion cases or made public statements on abortion, so although the presumption is that they are committed to overturning Roe v. Wade and have been vetted for that. It's hard to know that based on their record. So leading up to the announcement, it was unclear what kind of nominee we were going to get. We ended up with Judge Brett Kavanaugh, as I'm sure everyone knows. Um, he does have a couple of items in his record that are, um, that are overt red flags on abortion. One is a case that he decided, um, Garza, and people probably they may be a bit familiar with this case, and we can talk about it. And another is a speech that he gave very recently at the end of 2017, where he praised um, the dissent in Roe, which was written by Justice Rehnquist. And Rehnquist, obviously, he was dissenting because he did not feel that the Constitution protects the right to abortion. And Judge Kavanaugh um, praised that approach, that broader approach to reading the Constitution in a way that signals that he is not of abortion rights at all. So the Garza case is the Justice for Jane case? That's right. Um, so if people want an in-depth dive, they can listen to an earlier episode. I can't remember which one it is, what number it is off the top of my head, but we do have one that does a deep dive on it. But if you want to maybe do like a short bit on what that case was, that would be great. Yeah, so Garza um, was a challenge brought by a, a minor immigrant woman who was in detention. She had come to the U.S. unaccompanied and was in federal detention on the Texas border when she found out that she was pregnant. She decided that she wanted to have an abortion. She was able to receive logistical support and funding through, um, through private funds. And the government didn't have to have any involvement in arranging in, in, her, in arranging her abortion or paying for it or providing any support around it. Um, what the government did was uh, continually block her access to abortion. So in Texas, um, Texas state law requires minors who don't want to tell their parents that they're seeking abortion to go to state court for a bypass process. And the judge has to decide either that they are um, the judge has to decide that they're able to make the decision for themselves and allow them to go forth. Um, so the Jane uh, went through this process and did get that permission from the state court judge to go forward with her abortion to make the decision and to consent on her own behalf. But the federal government would not allow her to leave the facility, which meant basically just stepping out of her way so she could go in order to allow her to go to the clinic. Instead, the government um, made her go to a CPC, uh, funny, uh, to receive religious counseling, and they isolated her in order so they could 
tried to um, convince her to ter- carry to term with one-on-one conversations with officials. They called her, her mother and told her mother that she was seeking abortion, her mother in her home country, um, which is which is not permitted under the Constitution. They, after all their persuasive, attempted persuasive tactics were not working and she was committed because she had made her decision, they just decided to block her and they were not going to let her have the abortion. So Jane went to court. A district court judge said this is blatantly unconstitutional. The government is not allowed to hinder people or block them from having abortion after they've gone through all the legal requirements allowing them to to have access. The government appealed to the appellate court in D.C., and that's when Kavanaugh um, ruled in favor of the government and said it was fine um, to block Jane's abortion for at least 11 more days, but possibly much longer, um, because he said after 11 days, everyone can come back and start this process again, essentially. Jane can be, um, can ask to be released to have her abortion. The government can again say, no, we're not going to do that. There can be appeals, um, and that could go on for a long time. And those 11 days really matter because she was in Texas, and Texas has a 20-week abortion ban. That is true. There, She was um, getting close to the legal limit, and she had already been delayed for almost a month. Um, there was no indication that anything was going to happen that would get her out of the situation. The government had tried to claim that maybe a sponsor would be found who would take her out of detention, and then she could obtain her abortion on her own. And again, this is totally unconstitutional because the Supreme Court has said that minors have the right to access abortion without consulting with their parents or guardians once they go through this a bypass process to get permission and that they have to be able to do that because their liberty right allows them to make the decision on their own. So really, it, it, it doesn't make sense. It's totally incorrect to say that maybe she could be released and then consult with her guardian so that she could get more advice around this process. So the good news is Jane got her abortion. The bad news is that Kavanaugh had a bad ruling. That's right. In the uh, guard's opinion, Kavanaugh showed that he does not think that the constitutional pr- protections for abortion are meaningful. He, he claimed that he was a fine Supreme Court precedent, but he got it completely backwards. The precedent is clear, crystal clear, that government cannot unilaterally block access to abortion after someone has made the free choice and gone through all the state requirements. Government just can't do that. There is no reading of precedent that permits it. So even if he said that he was uh, was complying with precedent, um, his version is, is very devastating for reproductive rights. Um, the other thing to be aware of is that uh, Kavanaugh um, has said several times that lower court judges are bound by precedent, including Roe, the Supreme Court, is, is, is not. The Supreme Court is the court, the highest court in the land, and can change precedent. So even if he, um, even if he claimed that he would follow Roe as a lower court judge, there is no guarantee that he would, he would do the same if he were elevated to the highest court. So if you were looking into a crystal ball, you know, you hear a lot of talk about an, that Roe would be overturned. Do you think it would be something as blatant as an outright overturning of Roe? Or do you think we'd be kind of continuing what we're already seeing, which is a death by a thousand cuts? Uh, well, really, it could go either way. Mm-hmm. The um, the basis for overturning Roe would be that 
Bestin don't think that the Constitution protects the right to abortion as a as a liberty right. And there is, in, in some parts of the legal field, quite robust support for that reading of the Constitution. Um, and it's based on kind of this broader judicial philosophy that doesn't think that the Constitution protects rights that are not in the text. So the, te the text includes the word liberty, but it doesn't spell out abortion, it doesn't spell out contraception, it doesn't spell out marriage, it doesn't spell out child rearing or sexual relationships or procreation or bodily integrity. So according to this kind of formalist judicial philosophy, none of those rights are protected because they're not written into the text. And Justice Kavanaugh um, has signaled um, both in public speeches and in at least one decision that he agrees with this reading of the Constitution, textual reading of the Constitution. So that carried to its extreme means that the Constitution doesn't protect abortion at all and Roe would have to be overturned. So that's like the extreme overturning scenario, which can't be off the table because right. said, this, this judicial philosophy is is robust and has a lot of support. The alternative would be just to uphold a lot of restrictions while not saying that the Constitution doesn't protect abortion at all. It would just be weakening the legal standard so that um, lots of constitutions would be, sorry, lots of restrictions would be found constitutional. And the effect of that um, could be really, really extreme. Maybe not as extreme as a full-out overturning of Roe in that case, our estimate is that around 22 states would actually make abortion illegal. So if Roe is just weakened but not overturned, they can't do that. They can't ban abortion outright, but they can pass extreme restrictions that in some states would have the effect of probably closing the only clinic. So the two abortion restrictions in Texas that were just struck down in 2016 would have reduced the number of clinics in that state to probably like eight to 10 for the whole state, which was vastly, vastly inadequate for a state with that many people, reproductive age people who are seeking abortion. In Mississippi, there's only one clinic, and the reason it was able to stay open is because those types of restrictions were struck down in the Texas case. So even just weakening the standards of those kinds of restrictions would be upheld, would have a devastating impact on access. Um, okay, so what can listeners do to get involved? Probably the most important thing to do is to call your senators and urge them vocally to stand up and say bro. Um, so call them and send them emails to follow up. Senators do respond to um, personal stories. So if you feel comfortable talking about how access to abortion has mattered in your own life or, or, or for people who are, are close to you, then talking about that can be really persuasive. You um, should also write op-eds, blog posts, letters to the editor, social media posts. There are some hashtags that are that are being used by the movement. One is hashtag Save SOTUS. Another is hashtag Protect Row. And then we have hashtag What's at Stake. Um, so when you're posting on social media using these, we'll, uh, we'll put you in the mix of lots of voices being raised all, all together. And writing print media also can sometimes be overlooked. So if you if you do feel moved to write a letter to the editor or, or an op-ed, then that can be great too. And you might reach audiences who are not as um, familiar as in tune with social media. A third option is to write a letter to the Senate Judici Judiciary Committee. And all letters going to are entered into the public record. And those become searchable. 
Um, so they you know, share your story, tell, tell the Senate Judiciary Committee how much this means to you, talk about the constitutional rights, talk about other constitutional rights that are related to abortion. Um, all, all of that is powerful. If you are in a state where where a senator is holding town halls or ha having events to meet with the public, then definitely go to those. Get out in front. You, you, you might feel reluctant. You might feel pushy, but these forums are set up for that. So just go there and talk about how important Roe is and how how this nomination means everything. The last thing that you can do is sign mobilization efforts in your area. Um, there, there are various groups, including Indivisible, um, People's Defense. You know, there's stuff going on in BC now through National Women's Law Center and other groups. These are um, these include events, they include reports, they include rallies, protest demonstrations. So go online and find something near you and jump in. Amy, thank you so much for doing this. Um, uh, thank you. Yeah, great. It was wonderful to be with you. Thanks so much. For more information, including show notes from this episode and previous episodes, please visit our website at reprosfightback.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at reprosfightback. If you like our show, please help others find it by sharing it with your friends and subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.